0: Let's pray. God, we just want to come to you um, with thankful hearts. You have done uh, more than we could ever have hoped or imagined. Uh, And your love for us is marvelous and wonderful, words that um, don't, don't capture enough what your love for us actually is. I pray, God, that the reality of who you are and uh, the reality of what you have done for us and the reality of who we are in you would be so apparent to each one of us this morning, God. I pray that your spirit would be with us. I pray that you would move among us. I pray that you would do what only the living God can do. God, we ask that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable today by the power of your word. And to that end, we ask that you would just open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, what it is that you have to show us this morning, God, what you have to teach us this morning. Help us to become more like your son, even in these few moments that we spend together meditating on your word and communing with each other. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the incredible privilege it is to know you, for the joy it is to walk with you, and for the hope that we find in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. You can be seated. good morning again Uh, and can I say happy first day of spring we made it through another we made it through another brutal vicious northern California winter (laughs) Like I know we need rain, and so I'm not making light of that. But for a kid from the Midwest who spent a lot of time in the Northeast, it's like this day each year was like literally what I just said. Like we made it. It's spring, even though it was still negative 20 and four inches of snow. Um, So still a special day, even though spring here comes in like January. Happy first day of spring. I also want to say a big thank you to Jason Johnson for uh, his word last week. Uh, was sorry not to be here, uh, but he brought just a fantastic message on what it means to have faith like a child, and, uh, and I'm really grateful to him and for the way he serves uh, us and the gifts that God has given him. So uh, we're in Mark, shocker, Mark chapter 10, uh, I'm going to be preaching uh, from verses 32 to 52, Mark 10, 32 to 52. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, I'll give you about 10 seconds to get, you, get there. Uh, otherwise, we'll have the words up on the screen. Or you could look it up on your phone, or your tablet, or your iPad, or whatever. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. It says And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?' And they said to him, "'We are able.' And Jesus said to them, "'The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized.'" But to sit at my right hand or or at my left is not mine to grant, but it it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, now, I need to, ask, uh, I need to ask an important question this morning. And I'm not trying to start a bunch of dissension in the room. Uh, it's a hard question. But it's a it's a question that has to be broached. We need to sit with it, and uh, we need to have grace for those whose opinions might disagree, you know, not, not agree with ours. Uh, and here's the question that I, I need us to, to ponder this morning: Who is the greatest Disney character of all time? See, if if it was family Sunday, I'd be getting a lot of they'd be talking me down, shouting me down right now. I heard one I heard one uh, vote for Mickey Mouse. Uh, but you can just think about it for a second. I know there's not going to be agreement, but it's a, it's a critical question. Who is the greatest character in the history of Disney? Now, here's the fun thing about this morning. I have the mic. <laughs> and so you're going to hear who my favorite character is uh, because I'm the one with the mic. That's just the way it works. Please don't be offended. One day you will have your turn, presumably, uh, to share your opinion. Uh, The character that I think is the greatest comes from a story uh, of a young child uh, who has no parents, who is living alone, who has no hope and no future. That's about 50 Disney movies at this point. He has one friend. uh, They live alone in the ruins uh, of their city. Uh, They live by lying, stealing, and cheating uh, on the streets of their city. And uh, one day, uh, Aladdin and Abu... Are caught stealing, arrested, and taken into custody. Uh, the evil Jafar wants a magic lamp, and he he through a vision understands that Aladdin is the diamond in the rough. Come on, and he is the one who can actually get the lamp that he needs. And so, under disguise, he takes Aladdin out of prison. He takes him out into the desert in the middle of the night to a place called the Cave of Wonders. That should be a ride at Disneyland, the Cave of Wonders. And he sends Aladdin and Abu into the cave, giving them instructions to only take the lamp. He wants the lamp. Don't touch anything else. They go down into the cave. They find the lamp. I know you all know this story, or many of you. Actually, there might be a few of you who are like, I've never heard this before, and this is awesome. They find the lamp. They get the lamp, but little monkey Abu can't keep his hands off of a beautiful jewel. And when he touches it, the cave of the mouth closes. And they are trapped under the Arabian desert, presumably forever. Until, by chance, they find out why Jafar wanted the lamp so badly. By accident, they rub the lamp. And all of you thought Aladdin was my favorite character, or Abu, or Jafar. No. Out of the lamp comes who? The genie of the lamp, voiced by Robin Williams... The one that is, I understand arguably, it's not a consensus, arguably the greatest character in Disney history. Do you know that before this, this is just an aside, uh, almost all voice actors for movies were like trained voice actors. And Robin Williams was the first like celebrity that voiced an animated movie. And it started the trend, which we all have, we have now like every animated movie is voiced by celebrities that we're familiar with. It was groundbreaking. He's a blue character, phenomenal cosmic power in an itty-bitty living space. And he is a genie in the truest sense of the word. Whoever owns the lamp has control of the genie, and they have what? Three wishes. And their wish is the genie's command. And so what seemed like a hopeless situation, all of a sudden doesn't seem so hopeless because Aladdin and Abu now have something at their disposal that can get them out of any problem that they might have gotten themselves into. They have something at their disposal that can give them anything they want. When I was growing up, I think that movie came out when I was 10, uh, I, was, I spent a lot of time thinking about the genie of the lamp. And here's why. Uh, there are some people... Who survey the landscape of their life and they are for the most part content. There are other people who survey the landscape of their life and they can come up with a lot of wishes. I am the latter. So uh, at Christmas we asked our kids, I'm not gonna name any names uh, to protect their identities, to write Christmas lists. Uh, One of my children struggled to come up with two things they wanted for Christmas. (laughs) Another of my child children I can't remember if the number was 42 things or 52 things. It was low 40s or low 50s. It was like front of the page, back of the page, all the margins were filled in. And I'm like, where did this child get this? And I was like, oh yeah, from from me. So I loved the genie because I would daydream about what if I had a magical lamp with a genie inside of it and I had three wishes to get anything I wanted. Number one was a Nintendo. Number two was a BMX bike. And number three, I never got to because there were so many other things to choose from. How could I narrow it down for my final third wish? As an adult, I still think about those kind of things. I still think about the things that I wish I could have. Now, I'm not sitting at my desk working on sermons, daydreaming about finding a magical lamp and a blue genie voice by Robin Williams popping out. But I do still have a lot of things I want a lot of things that I think I need, a lot of wishes in my life. And I suspect I'm not the only one. Thank you. We all have needs. We all have wants. We all have wishes. And though we're not searching through, you know, through attics or caves, looking for magic lamps, seeing if a genie is going to come out if we rub it, We all are hoping that certain things will happen in our lives, that we will get certain things. We're hoping that things will work out a certain way. We all have wants. We all have hopes. We all have wishes. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, I got a bunch of questions actually. The first question I want to ask you this morning is this. Actually, it's the second because I asked who the greatest Disney character was. If you got home today and on your kitchen table was a lamp and you rubbed it, And a genie came out, and that genie was there, standing there, talking to you, and said to you, What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? It's not a, like, actually think about it. I'm going to be quiet for a second. How would you answer that if a genie asked you today, What do you want me to do for you? You don't have to shout it out. You can if you want. But don't just be like, Oh, that's a nice question, Pastor. What are you going to talk about next? Here's the second, third, here's the third question I'm going to ask. Imagine you go home today, and there uh, at your kitchen table is not a lamp, but is Jesus. And Jesus says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be to that? And is there a difference in your answers? That question, what do you want me to do for you? is the unifying question for these passages that we are looking at today. Jesus asks it twice, two different scenarios, two very different answers. It's the title of my sermon today because I believe that he is asking you and I the same question right now. What do you want me to do for you? It's one of the most poignant questions he asks in all of scripture. And our answer to that question reveals so much about who we are and where we are in our discipleship journey with him. What do you want me to do for you? So we're continuing our series this morning in Mark that we're calling Let's Go. We're doing a full study, deep dive into virtually every passage in the Gospel of Mark. And today we come to these two stories that are unified by this one question that Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And as we come to this text, what I want us to recognize is this. Take a big picture view of Mark for just a moment. If you can remember, the first part of the book of Mark was Jesus uh, traveling around the area of Galilee. We've talked about this before, kind of this circuitous route, going in and out of towns and villages, ministering to people, healing them. But the overarching theme of the first part of the gospel of Mark is Jesus' identity. It is people trying to figure out who is this guy. It's Mark trying to draw out for us, who Jesus is, and that culminates in Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi of saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, and after that confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi to Jesus saying, you are the Christ, this is who you are, the middle part of the Gospel of Mark, which is what we're in today, is not a circuitous journey in and out of villages, but it is a straight line journey to one place, and that is to Jerusalem, Over and over in the middle part of this passage, the middle part of this gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and his disciples were following him there. Now, that is a literal physical journey that Jesus and his disciples took, but I want us to see this because it's critical for what we see in the verses we're looking at today. It is also a metaphor, it is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The journey to Jerusalem illustrates what discipleship looks like what it means to follow Jesus. And so if the first part of Mark is about the identity of Jesus, the middle part of the Gospel of Mark, the journey to Jerusalem, is about the process of discipleship. It's about following Jesus. It's why when we open up the passage that we're looking at today, verse 32, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. That is a picture of discipleship. We are on the road with Jesus. We are going somewhere. We are not the ones leading. He is in front of us. We are following him wherever he might take us. And then when we get down to verse 33, this is what Jesus says to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem That's a really critical word in the text. He doesn't say, I am going up to Jerusalem, even though he is. He says, we are going to Jerusalem. Because the process of discipleship, the process of following Jesus with our lives is that he doesn't go alone and we watch and see what he does. It's that we go with him. And wherever he leads us, we go. Wherever he takes us, we follow. And what he takes us through, we go through with him as well. The road to Jerusalem is a picture of discipleship. And in this passage, we're going to see two truths. We're going to see two aspects of what discipleship is. Actually, we're going to see one aspect of what discipleship isn't, and then one, one aspect of what discipleship is. So two things we're going to draw out of this text today, just two of them, trying to keep it simple. And the first thing I want us to see in these verses we're studying today is this. We want the wrong things. We want the wrong things. So here they are, Jesus, his disciples, and a whole other crowd who are on their way to Jerusalem. They're probably coming south through the Jordan Valley. They're about to hit Jericho, which is the, the pit, last pit stop, last gas before Jerusalem. Uh, I know some of, some of us, some of you, not us, some of you were, were just there a few weeks ago. You can picture this in your mind. So here they're coming down a dusty, dirty road, Big crowd following behind Jesus. He predicts his death and resurrection. This is the third time he predicts it. And each time that he predicts it in the Gospel of Mark, his disciples respond by showing that they totally don't understand what he clearly just said to them. The first time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection is right after Peter confesses him as the Christ. And how does Peter respond? He rebukes him. No, Jesus, that will never happen to you. Jesus calls him Satan, we, so we know that's not a good thing. Peter was wrong. Second time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, do you remember what happened right afterwards? They're walking somewhere on the road following Jesus, and then they get to their destination, and Jesus is like, what were you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, we were talking about who's the greatest among us. It's like, okay, oh for 2, you still don't get it. And then here's the third time now at the beginning of our passage. It's the most clear prediction yet that Jesus makes of what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. And true to form, James and John just just have another face plant after Jesus predicts his passion. So they're continuing on the road. Jesus is walking ahead. The text tells us some of them are amazed. Some of them are afraid. And you can just see James and John, they're brothers. They shared a room growing up. They've, they've They've given each other black eyes. And they're like... Now is our chance. And, and, you know, James is like, should we go now? And John's like, no, no, we got to wait till no one else can see us. And they're all distracted, and they're like, all right, they find the right moment. Everyone else is talking amongst themselves, and they kind of speed up ahead of the crowd to where Jesus is up there by himself. Probably one comes up on his right, one comes up on his left. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, what's going on? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And this is what they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And if there's like any question whether these guys understand what Jesus is about or where he's going, it's answered in that moment because they're clueless. He just said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to uh, be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And they still think he's going to Jerusalem for his coronation. They think he's going to come in. He is the rightful king entering into his rightful kingdom, but he is not coming in as a conquering king, but they still think. They're they're starting to understand that he's the Messiah, but remember, they can't get through their heads what kind of Messiah he is going to be, or he is. I shouldn't say he's going to be. And so they're like, this is our moment. This is the last chance before we get to his big party in Jerusalem where we can make sure we get the best seats at the table. And this was not just a request for the the coronation party. The right hand and the left hand of a king, to sit at the right or left hand of the king, were places of power, prominence, and prestige. They want glory. And Jesus is like, you don't even understand it. He says as much in the very next verse, 38. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Because they think he's going there to be crowned as a king. He's going there to be crowned with a crown of thorns and murdered on a cross. And he's like, can you handle what I'm about to go through? And they're like, yeah, we're able. We can do that. And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking. And then, true to form, this is what he says. Remember a few weeks ago, when, actually when we were talking about uh, the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. We said that Jesus redefines what greatness is. He does the same thing here, except he redefines what glory is. He says in verse 43, he talks about how the Gentiles, how the world does it. He says, when they're in authority, they crush those who are underneath them. Then he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So what is he saying? In my kingdom, glory is not for the ones who sit at the right and left hand of the king. Glory is for the ones who sit below everybody. Glory is for the ones who are least of all. And how, how crummy a job have we done that even in the church? In our celebrity pastor culture, in our hierarchical structure, like we're not doing a great job of this even in the church. Jesus is like, glory is not the way the world defines it. It is, it is the upside down kingdom. And if you really want glory in my kingdom, you're not asking about sitting at the right hand or the left hand of the king. You're asking about who is the least person that you can serve. How can you get lower than them? And this is what he says, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ran- as a ransom for many. What's he saying there? And the reason it works that way is because the king, the top dog has set the example, that's me. I'm the one who's about to go die for the sins of the world. And as the rest of scripture makes very clear, Jesus glorification was ultimately in his cross. In the kingdom of God, glory is not found in power, prestige, or in prominence, but is found in dying to yourself and taking up your cross and following him. And he's like, you guys don't, you guys can't even handle. You guys can't even handle it. He's like, you want the wrong things. You've been too influenced by the world and their view, and you want the wrong things, and they're not good for you. In a previous, I was going to say a previous life. It feels like a previous life. It was my same life, my life. Uh, Before ministry, I was in the business world, and uh, a lot of my time in the business world was spent entertaining. Uh, And now, for those of you who are like, you had tea parties at your house? That's not what I mean. Uh, We would have, you know, I'd spend a lot of time taking clients and customers out to to dinner and events. Uh, My company was located, headquartered in Chicago. And so we did the suburbs of Chicago. And so we did a lot of big client events in the Chicago area. And when we had clients in and took them out, you know, we weren't going to McDonald's or Five Guys. uh, We took them to really nice places. And kind of, we we went to a lot of them, but kind of our home-based restaurant. The place that I ate more than any other uh, is a restaurant called Gibson's Steakhouse on Rush Street in downtown Chicago. Anybody? Yeah, my mouth is watering just talking about it. Um, and when, when we would go to those dinners, I, myself, uh, my coworkers, and our clients, for the most part, would take advantage of everything that a restaurant like that has to offer, particularly when you're not the one paying the bill. And so it was like the crab cake hors d'oeuvres, yes, please. The uh, bacon-wrapped scallop hors d'oeuvres, yes, please. The jumbo shrimp, yes, please. We'll take those. Uh, it's like, I don't just want the turf. I want the surf as well. And so we'll, you know, we'll have the steak and the lobster. And the, the bowl of, you know, when I first went, it's like, what is that delicious sauce in that bowl? And someone was like, that's liquefied butter. And I'm like, that's amazing. It's like, I'm not going to put just the lobster in there. I'm going to put the steak in there as well. Uh, will I have the twice-baked potato? Yes, I will. With the sour cream and bacon and cheese? Yes, absolutely. And did I eat the skin, like the whole thing? I sure did. And then when it came time for dessert, it was like they would give us two options. There was uh, a macadamia nut turtle ice cream pie or there was strawberry shortcake. And when the waiter asked me which one I wanted, I said both, and he gave me both. Uh, But there were always a few people that I worked with uh, who would go to those dinners and when the waiter came to them at the table and everyone's ordering T-bones and porterhouses and ribeyes and surf and turf, they would be like, uh, I'll have the grilled salmon and steamed vegetables. And you know, everyone at the table is like, oh, you, you think you're better than us? good for you. Why did they order that? Because a meal like that, like once every three months or every six months is a treat or an indulgence. But in a meal like that every week will kill you. And, and if you're out entertaining, if you're taking people out to dinner every week, you, you learn quickly that the human uh, mind and body sometimes wants the wrong things. All that stuff was really tasty, really good. You felt like junk for like 36 hours afterwards, like because of the gluttony that you had just indulged in. And there were just a few people who had the self-awareness and the discipline to be like, I I just can't do that all the time. I just need to eat the grilled chicken or the grilled salmon and the vegetables because we oftentimes want the wrong things. It was uh, the early church father, Augustine, in his uh, seminal work, Confessions, who talked about our disordered loves. It's the way he describes sin. He said, the problem with us is that we love the wrong things. And part of what we need God to do for us, part of what we need Jesus Christ to do for us, is to reorder our disordered loves. And before we go in too hard on James and John in this passage and be like, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Like, how how dumb could they be? We do the same thing. They were seeing Jesus Christ as a phenomenal cosmic power who could give them whatever they wanted. And we're right there with them because we are so influenced by the world and by our culture. What we think that we want is what the world tells us to want. And that is we want health and we want wealth and we want prosperity and power and prominence we want to make every team. We want to get straight A's. We want to be at the top of our class, get into the right schools, get the right jobs, get all the promotions that we should or don't deserve but still want to get them anyway. And Jesus is like, those are the wrong things. Those are, those are disordered loves. I am not a genie here to give you whatever it is that you want. We want the wrong things. And then the second thing I want us to see in this passage is this, even though we want the wrong things, we only need one thing. We only need one thing. So contrast this story. It's not an accident that these two stories follow each other. Contrast James and John's request to let me sit at your right hand and let me sit at your left hand in glory with what Bartimaeus responds to the exact same question. So here comes the crowd. They're they're hitting Jerusalem, like I said, last pit stop, or they're hitting Jericho, excuse me, last pit stop, last place for gas before the climb up to the capital city of Jerusalem. And as they come through the town, as they're heading out on the other side, look at what Mark tells us, verse 46. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. That's where he was physically, physically, But it's more than physical. It's a metaphor because the disciples are where? Following Jesus on the road. And Bartimaeus is sitting by the road. And he hears that Jesus is coming. And he begins to cry out, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The term son of David, time does not permit for us to kind of go into a biblical theology study of what that meant, but it was a messianic term. God had promised David, Israel's greatest king, back in the Old Testament that one day he would have a his offspring would come and that offspring had become conflated rightly so with the Messiah. And so here's blind Bartimaeus, seeing more clearly than the 12 guys who spent the last 3 years with Jesus. And maybe the reason Jesus stops is because he's like, "Who is calling me son of David?" Like I haven't heard that over the last 3 years. And the crowd's like, you know, knock it off, be quiet. You're a poor beggar, blind person. And Jesus is like, call him to me. And they're like, never mind. He's good, you're good. He wants to see you. So they're like, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And someone brings him to Jesus. He goes to Jesus. And here we go, verse 51. Jesus says to him, what? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. But here's the deal Jesus tells him, Go your way. Does he go his way? No. Because look at the very last clause of the last verse. And immediately he recovered his sight and went home. No. And followed him on the way. He was on the roadside, he was a spectator. He wasn't part of this deal. Jesus gave him his sight. And he got up on the road, the road of discipleship, and instead of going back to his house or his shack or wherever he lived in Jericho, he now follows Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus gave him what he needed to follow him. Uh, This is the only person in the whole gospel that Jesus heals who is named. Why is that? It's not for sure. But most scholars think it's because the early church knew who he was. Because he didn't just stay in Jericho. Because he didn't just go back to his life. Because he got up and he followed Jesus to Jerusalem and he became known as a disciple of Jesus Christ in the early church. And so when Mark wrote his gospel, he's like, remember Bartimaeus, a lot of you know him. He was blind in Jericho and Jesus gave him his sight and he followed him on the road. So what did Bartimaeus ask for when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Here's James and John. They're like, give us glory. And Bartimaeus is like, just give me what I need to follow you. All he needed was his sight to allow him to get up off the side of the road. All he needed to do was to be able to see who Jesus was and where he was going. And when he got it, he got up and he followed him. We only need one thing. And that is to be with Jesus. Why didn't Bartimaeus ask for glory? Because he didn't need glory to be with Jesus. I'm always uh, I'm always amazed and super impressed at how many uh, lawn care service trucks there are here in the Bay Area. You just drive around and you see them everywhere, and uh, and I love them. One because I love trucks. I know some are vans, but I, I, I love trucks. And I love, um, I love an organized storage system. I love order. And so I am just, I am always amazed at these folks who take care of lawns out here, at the way they outfit their trucks or their vans to hold all the gear that they need for their job. It's like they got these pickup trucks with these racks coming up the back and going out over the cab, and it's like they got everything they need right in its place lawnmower, trash cans, clippers, shears, rakes, uh, weed whackers, um, the most important lawn care tool on the West Coast, which is the blower. I mean, it's like, if you just have a blower, you can, do, you can take care of lawns. Uh, but everything is in its place. It all fits securely, and I love it. Do you know what I've never seen on the back of one of those trucks? A table saw. Or a meat smoker. Or a bunch of PVC piping. Or a mainframe... Hard drive I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but, you know, a big computer thing. Never seen those things on there. Why? Because they don't need them for their job. They just have the stuff with them that they need to do their job. So, so why didn't Bartimaeus ask for health, wealth, prosperity, power, and prominence? Because he didn't need those things to follow Jesus. And neither do we. And so the danger is that we start looking at Jesus like a magical genie who is here to make our lives better and give us the things that our hearts desire. And he's like, you only need one thing, and it's none of the stuff you're looking for. We don't need health, wealth, prosperity. We don't need promotions, prominence. We don't need power. We don't need to be the leader at our company. We don't need to be the best player on the team. We don't need to have the best GPA. We don't need to have to get into the best school. We don't have to look good to follow Jesus. All we need is eyes to see who he really is. All we need is to be with him. And let's keep it real, as I try to do. More often than not, all those things I just described actually make it harder to follow Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is through Jerusalem. See, John and James, they wanted to circumvent Jerusalem. They wanted to get to the glory on the other side. But if we are following Jesus, if we are disciples of his, following him on the road, going where he takes us, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And we are not going there for a coronation party. We are going there to be spit on, to be flogged, to be mocked, to be killed. We are going there to to endure suffering and sacrifice, taking up of our cross and dying daily to ourselves. That is where the glory is actually found. We want the wrong things and we only need one thing. So when Jesus comes to us and asks, what do you want me to do for you? May our answer simply be, give me whatever I need to be with you. Uh, As we wrap up, worship team, you can start uh, coming back up. Uh, Let us recognize this. Less than a week later, Jesus was going to be raised up in glory. It just wasn't the glory that the 12 disciples thought it was going to be. Less than a week later, Jesus was raised up in glory, except he was raised up because he had been nailed onto a cross and lifted up for all the world to see. And in that glorification, don't miss this, there was someone seated at his right hand and someone seated at his left hand. Except they weren't seated. They were nailed to a cross as well. And I wonder if in that moment, James and John were somewhat grateful That their request had been denied. And as the three of them hung there on the cross, though scripture doesn't record it, I believe it's the question Jesus asks of every single one of us. Jesus asked those men to his right and to his left, What do you want me to do for you? And one of them responded, like James and John If you are who you say you are, get me down off of this cross, give me glory. And the other responded like Bartimaeus, Jesus, when you trade that crown of thorns for a crown of gold, remember me. And what did Jesus say? Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. what do you want me to do for you only one thing is needed give us what we need to be with you let's pray god as we journey through this life we feel just a constant tension of the things um, that our hearts desire our disordered loves the influence of our world and our culture and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. And there's just this ever everlasting temptation, God, to run after the wrong things. And yet here you come to us, phenomenal cosmic power, asking us, what do you want me to do for you? And I believe that you're looking for men and women, boys and girls who simply say, give me what I need to be with you. And so that is our prayer this morning, God. We don't ask for, for, for wealth, or fame, or prominence, or power, or prestige. We simply ask as a church body, and we simply ask as individuals this morning, God, that you will just give us only what we need to follow you. Only one thing is needed, and that is to be with you. And if we are with you, nothing, everything else pales in comparison. So we ask that you would be real to us, that you would provide for us, that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would reorder our loves so that our greatest desire is you and not the things of this world which in the light of your face grow strangely dim. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have one more song. Uh, This is going to be a a song of response. And this is a moment where uh, you can simply meditate on what you feel like the Spirit has been speaking to you this morning, if anything. It's a moment where you can simply just continue worshiping God. Uh, But it's also a moment where you can talk to God. If there's any business that you need to do with Him, now is a great time to do it. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, uh, there's no better time than right now to to make that decision. I would love to talk to you after church about what that means or what that looks like. Um, For some of us, this might just be a moment where we're like, God, um, I, I love the wrong things and I can't change that myself and I need you to change it for me, so please reorder my loves. So let's worship and I'll be back up for the benediction. joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.